Welcome to the Spectrum Lounge Podcast, where we discuss creatives of color disrupting the game in TV, film, and pop culture. I am your host, Rebecca Theodore Fashad, and on this episode, we speak with Velissa Thompson to discuss the themes of black pain and generational trauma on the acclaimed HBO series, Lovecraft Country. Thompson is a social worker, disability activist, and creator of Ramp Your Voice organization. Take a listen. Welcome, Velissa Thompson, to the Spectrum Lounge. How are you? you? I am great. I'm so glad to talk with you, Rebecca. Yes. I was like, we've been knowing each other. Oh, my God. We've known each other on Twitter for like, what, four? I want to say like four or five years. Yeah, about four or five years. And I think we both realized it's our first time actually talking to each other <laughs> but it's like you feel like you're so close to someone and it's like oh no I mean I haven't actually heard their voice in real time so that's that's interesting well actually uh shameless plug my girl Melissa Thompson was part of the DNC um in one of their promotions I was so proud of you girl congratulations you. You. that was a very <laughs> big moment and I just really love being a part of it yeah so I mean because you do a lot of activism uh, for the disab- disabled community, you have uh, a platform. What is it? Ramp Your Voice, correct? Yep. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's how I, that's how I first came across you. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been doing this work, surprisingly, seven years now, officially. So it doesn't feel that long, but some days it does. But it's just really been great <laughs> to kind of grow this platform and just be able to do different things like meeting people like you and the film and TV world and also the blurry space and just have all these conversations. That's one thing I really like about my career, the diversity of what I get to do in the conversation. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, you are also a social worker. Yes. By training. Um, and so this is why I invited you onto the show, because we're going to be doing a series of, this is going to be first in a series of uh, podcast episodes where we will be doing um, deep dives into the HBO series Lovecraft Country, um, which premiered two Sundays ago on HBO. Um, it's based on the novel novel written by Matt Ruff, and it was adapted and created by Misha Green, who is genius. Um, and also two of the producers on Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country are J.J. Abrams and Jordan Peele. Um, so we are, episode two just aired. A couple of days ago, um, a lot of oh my god moments. Yes. <laughs> um, so I just I wanted to really talk to you about that because uh, you know there's I I feel the great thing about Lovecraft Country is that you know while it is very much a show about the supernatural and horror, it's also you know very grounded in uh, you know familial dynamics and particularly the black family the joys of the black family and also the dysfunctions of the black family. So I felt that you could bring us a a unique perspective on how you feel that uh, Lovecraft country is basically tackling these topics. So first off, what did you think of the first two episodes of Lovecraft country? Oh, wow. Yeah. I could definitely tell that Jordan Peele has his hands all up in this when it comes to some of the elements that we kind of see when it comes to his body of work. And it's also just seeing I like seeing stories set in the past, you know, Mm -hmm. but still seeing the humanness of black folks, not the kind of pity of black folks from that era, particularly, you know, just set in the, you know, 1950s. Um, Just really seeing the way that things were 
back then and how not much has really changed besides mm-hmm. the date on the calendar, you know, particularly with the world that that is going on right now. Um, I just really love to see, for me, just that background of like the styles and the way that people related to each other and how it's just really such a family unit, even people who are related and those who are family by choice. So mm-hmm. I just really feel that it's done so respectfully, even when you're hitting the hard topics of racism, like you said, the dysfunctional family elements, and also having some black joy in there too. You know, mixed mm. in. it's not always just downtrodden, you know, like black people, regardless of the time, we do find some joy mixed in somewhere in the midst of the chaos and the way that the world, you know, treats us and things are out of our control. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, the show is just done so good. You know, I, <laughs> I really wasn't sure what to expect. Like the trailer, I was like, okay. When I saw the trailer a couple of months ago, I was like, okay, yeah, this is definitely going on my to watch list when it um, debuts. So it has been a wild ride these past two Sundays mm-hmm. watching this um, series go down. But yeah, I, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed yeah. it. It's, um, you know, I'm familiar, we're familiar with Misha Green from her work on Underground. And I know right. you and I were both fans of Underground and we were so yes. devastated when it was canceled. Oh. So I am so happy to see Misha Green. Like, I feel like she was the right person to tell this oh, God, story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And to be able to see a Black woman creative, because clearly by watching Lovecraft Country, they are not holding the purse strings with the budget to no. the show. No. <laughs> no. So it, it's really great to be able to see um, a black woman showrunner just kind of given free reign to just kind of do whatever she wants. And especially in a space of the supernatural and, and horror, that's, that's great. Um, but one of the things that I've always, uh, I loved about underground and I see that in um, Lovecraft country too, is really her deep dive. Like I love the way that she crafts black characters, that they're very three di- dimensional. She's not trying to do positive representation so much as this is the way it is, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, which I thought was great. And so like with the opening scene, so the, the opening scene, which was amazing, it was this great fantasy of Atticus kind of putting himself in the space of the sci-fi book that he was writing uh, he was reading and then you kind of see him snap back to reality and he's in the back of a segregated bus that says for colored only. And it was like, ah, oh, yes. I can so relate to that. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then we find out, you know, through some exposition that he's a war veteran, he's back uh, fighting from the Korean war and he's actually um, coming back in order to, uh, find his father. His father has gone missing. His father sent him a pretty cryptic note. But we also get through the quick conversation that he has with uh, the other black woman who's writing, who was writing on the bus with him, that the relationship between Atticus and his father Montrose is not exactly rosy. Stories are like people. Love them doesn't make them perfect. You just try and cherish them. Overlook their flaws. The flaws are still there. Yeah, they are. But I love folk stories. I love that the heroes get to go on adventures in other worlds, defiant survival odds, defeat the monster, save the day. <laughs> Little Negro boy from the south side of Chicago was on the tours to get to do that. 
Unless they join the army. Didn't join for adventure. Join to get away from my father. So I wanted to talk to you just based on the two episodes that you saw. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that family, that family d- dynamic between um, Atticus Montrose and his uncle George? There's a lot there. I think mm-hmm. um, a part of me, particularly in episode two, don't mean to skip ahead a little bit with the, you know, not so low key insinuation that. Know, um, Atticus may not be Montrose's child. That's like, mm-hmm. I know it's like the family, the black families will have these secrets, right? So yes. there's a lot of secrets in that family, mm-hmm. a lot of unspokenness. You know, you see the tension between George and Montrose about um, their upbringing, with Montrose being the one to get abused and, you know, and George feeling regret for that and Montrose had a resentment to him, you know, about not doing enough and not protecting him. You just mm-hmm. see all these elements, and especially with black men at that. And I really love that it centers these three black men and how they relate to each other and relate to their fathers and relate it's in ways that is very candid, very vulnerable, and very realistic to how black men have their particular experiences. Um and you see the trauma that each of them carry. You see how the trauma has shaped them. You know, with George, he's kind of the responsible brother. He's the one kind of in some ways respectable brother. You know, mm-hmm. he's the the businessman. With Atticus, you know, he's dealing with being a war veteran. You know, coming back and trying to readjust to life, and trying to, you know, adjust to his relationship with his father, trying to figure out what's going on with that. But my trust, you can tell that he's carrying a lot. You know, carrying a lot of baggage against his brother and his son. So mm-hmm. just all these interesting elements is coming together of what trauma can do to people when it's unsaid and unresolved and how unsaid and unresolved trauma has a life of its own within each person and the relationship that they have to the person whom they feel like is the cause or the person who did not do enough when it mm-hmm. comes to what they experience. So I really right. like that aspect of exploring the black family, but it's done so respectfully. You know, I think that's the issue that I have with a lot of black media when we have these tensions and conflicts is that it can lean in such a way that's kind of exploiting the the pain that people have. So I really Mm -hmm. feel that this is being done respectfully. And that's kind of similar to what Misha did for Underground too, exploring that pain and the, the the trauma that people have in a very respectful and humanizing way. So where it's, it is relatable to people. Because either it's your part of your own story as a viewer, or you know someone whose story it is. So it's um, it's very realistic and relatable. But like I said, it's just really done in a way that doesn't feel icky when it comes to black pain on right. either the big screen or the small screen. Yeah. No, and I think you bring up a very important part, uh, being a very important point, because like you said, there there are certain black creators, ain't naming no names, but you can kind of see that when they do talk about, you know, black 
you know, pain or, or trauma within black families, I think there is a difference between exploiting it. And I think that that's the perfect word where you're exploiting it um, and what they call trauma porn, right? Black right. trauma porn. Right. And then there's there's a difference where it's like, OK, family, let's let's have a conversation. Let's be real. And let and let's talk about this, because I, I do feel that what underground and and Lovecraft Country, I think with Misha, I, I could be wrong, but I think what she's doing is she's trying to create the space for healing. It's not so much exploiting it, but really exposing it, right? Exposing these ugly truths that happen in a lot of black families, like that whole paternity yeah. surprise, right? Where it, it could very well be that George is Atticus's biological father. I mean, how many family members do we know in each of our families where the sister was really the the baby sister was really the older sister's daughter? You know what I mean? Like right. we can't act like this doesn't happen in black right. families. Or when yeah. the dad or when the you know dad dies, you realize he had a second family that nobody either knew about or did not talk about. You know, it's Woo! realistic. You're like, come on now, mm-hmm. you know, it's realistic. That's, <laughs> you know, mm. and I just feel that what I like about it is that it's realistic, like, and it's not, you know, it's not too animated or just too out there. You know, I just mm-hmm. really like that about this show. And yeah. I just really, and I really feel that it allows people to talk about these things, you know, because like you said, we all know, we all know somebody in our family or know of another family that has these same dynamics. And it just, mm-hmm. and I think these type of shows let us, let us know that we're not alone. If this is our family, you know, if we do know that the paternity of somebody's child is questionable, it's not just your family. This is common. And I feel mm-hmm. that when stories are done in a way that's respectful, it allows people to realize who, okay, it's not just my family. We got all this wild stuff in the closet that nobody wants to discuss. So I really right. think that if these shows bring out these issues that we know exist, but we keep it on the hush because that's what black people do. You know, it's like it's family business. You don't talk about it. But I'm like, some things need to be talked about. Mm, and yeah. And perpetuates the harm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's important. And it's, it's so fascinating. And I think Courtney B. Vance has did just an amazing job playing this character in the fact that like, I'm so fascinated by George because on one hand, when we're introduced to him, right, in episode one, we see him, you know, getting some morning loving with his <laughs> wife. And, yeah. you know, we understand that he sort of creates like he's one of the contributors to the green book of that time. Right. And so he goes on these dangerous trips to find safe travel for Negroes. And so we know he loves his wife. He's a loving and doting father to his daughter, Diana. You know, he's a good uncle to Atticus. But, you know, as the as these two episodes progress, we kind of see that maybe he's not as perfect (laughs) as we would like to think, Um, you know, because then we have to talk about the fact that he had a picture of Atticus's mother in his wallet, right? You're a married man. I'm just saying, why you have a picture (laughs) of this other woman? woman. Right. You know what I mean? And, and even in and even in episode two, when they are in um, when they're in Artem, uh, when each of them have these specific fantasies or nightmares, uh, it con- to him, it conjures up in the uh, in the in the image of Atticus's mother. Right. And so it's like, oh, OK, so clearly they had a thing. The question is, did they have a thing before or while? Uh, before she and Machos got together, or was this a secret affair 
you know, while they were together. I'm not sure what the timeline is, but I'm I'm pretty sure they'll add some light to it. So the the other interesting family dynamic is with uh, the introduction of Letitia Lewis, um, played by Journey Smollett, and um, we're both int- we're introduced to both Letitia and her sister Ruby right. uh, Baptiste, who's played by I'm in love. I'm like Team Ruby for so many reasons. <laughs> for real. Um, yeah, and I, I just love the fact that you know when we're introduced to Ruby, um, she's basically giving like Rosetta Tharp, you know, vibes. You know, she's like this 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 you know curvy, dark skinned black woman playing a guitar, much like Rosetta Tharp. And um, I just found that that the song that she sang in episode one, um, "I Need a Tall Skinny Man," that is actually a song by Rosetta Tharp. So that was clearly an homage to her. And once we see the dynamic, and after that, we start to see the dynamic in the conversation between Letty. And Ruby, that their sisterly love is not exactly rosy. <laughs> oh, no, not rosy at all. Got a lot of thorns. Yes. So can you talk to us about sort of like that dynamic between um, between Letitia and, and Ruby? You know, I feel that there's some, I see it in kind of my family, my own family dynamic, um, where you have the responsible sister mm-hmm. and the spinster sister. He kind of just does what she wants. And I really see that in my own family, like my aunt's the responsible one, my mother's the kind of did whatever she wanted. And it's the same kind of colorism aspect. My aunt's mm. the dark skin one, my mother's the light skin one. So I just really see those parallels. And I really didn't make that a connection until talking to you just now. So I think wow. that, um, just seeing their sister dynamic of Ruby being resentful of, you know, Letitia not being at the mother's funeral and mm. you know just that whole thing of not being responsible you know oh you need money again oh you need me to help you again being tired of her while she's having to you know live in this boarding house you know matter and this and that so I just feel that you know it just shows that similar dynamic of sometimes the siblings feeling like the they always have to be the one to take care of the other and we're both adults and I shouldn't have to take care of you like that but you're able to just take care of yourself so you see that friction there, that kind of maybe in some ways jealousy that Letitia gets to be a little bit freer than Ruby may not allow herself to be or so like mm. she cannot be. That type of dynamic too, you know, like when you're the responsible one, you know, you've put yourself in that box to where you cannot live freely, and especially with the color dynamic of being a darker skinned black woman in the 1950s. So we know how that goes when it comes to the way mm-hmm. that black women are viewed. So there's a lot there between that sister-sister dynamic that, honestly, if you have a sibling, you may understand that to some degree if your sibling dynamic is a little thorny. I know for me, I'm my only child, so I always observe these things, you know, yeah. from that lens of just watching people and just understanding how certain relationships may, may be touchy because of positions that people have been placed in, their families, positions that they place themselves in their families, and sometimes resentment as well. You know, I think there's some resentment and maybe valid, maybe not that Ruby has, you know, against Letitia. And Letitia is just trying to be like, well, sister, I love you, but, you know, I just want to live my life. And Ruby's like, when are you going to start being responsible? When you start being an adult? So, you know, different priorities, different perspectives of what living your life means and being responsible means. I think that's something that we really caught in that um, first introduction between them. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing with Ruby too, is that, um, she's dealing with, I mean, I, I wouldn't say dealing with, but the, the representation of her 
both being a darker skinned woman, but a plus size black woman. Yes. Right. So there's colorism and sizeism oh, yes. um, that that are at play. And I think what's so great about how they write the dynamic between Ruby and Letitia is that they don't there's no bold exposition like this is colorism. Right. I think black viewers and this is why I really feel like the show is actively fighting against the white gaze is that they're not spelling it out. They're not spoon feeding these, you know, this information to you. I think if you're smart, if you're someone who's black and you watch just that representation of it, of Ruby and Letitia, you know, standing across from each other, that pretty much says it all. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's just like, we know that colorism is at play. And it, it's like you said, it's, there, there could very well be a resentment on Ruby's side because, you know, Letitia's attitude is sort of like, well, why not? You know, right. When she says that she's going to go to the department store to get a job and Ruby's like, well, I've been, you know, applying for years and they won't, you know, hire me. Whereas, you know, Letitia was like, well, I'm going to just walk in there. I'm going to get a job. You know what I mean? And, and it's, it's this idea of imagination, right. That, or what comes with light skin privilege, because clearly people still see Letitia as a black woman. So right. the things that happened to her in the two episodes, first two episodes, she is not immune to that because nobody looks at her. White people are not looking at her as like, well, you're a light skinned black woman. And so we're not gonna, we're not gonna try to kill you or, or lynch you. That's not happening. But I do feel like there are certain ways that Letitia, she's afforded a certain amount of freedom that perhaps oh, yeah. Ruby has not been because of the colorism and because of the sizeism. Um, and the other thing that I really like about Ruby is that, um, at least for me, what I'm feeling is that they're not writing her as this typical mammy role, right? No. Like people who look like Ruby, traditionally, I, I would assume if white people were writing this show, she would be like the caring and loving, put upon older sister, like, okay, you know, and I had Kelly Terrell on uh, uh, Tarrell on my show, and she was like putting up with her light skin nonsense. Fat, <laughs> you know what I mean. And, and, and Ruby is like, I'm not here for none of that. Okay, she I was like, oh, yes, yes, I loved it. I love that. Oh, you think you can just gonna just come up here and stay with me and disrupt my life? <laughs> I think not. I think not. <laughs> that was basically Ruby's attitude, and I was here for it because who does that? <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit of. Letitia's kind of light skin privilege of you know, just thinking that she just down and do whatever, and then he would just kind of follow her feet and just let her, you know, just be free like that. I'm like, no, like you're not going to disrupt somebody's life like that just because you are not adulting well. You know, that's not you're not going to put somebody out like that. So I like Ruby's pushback on that. I really yeah, because you even saw that like it was very subtle, but. Uh, when, you know, Letitia showed up at the side of the stage and then someone from the band was like, oh, that's your sister. And she was like, yeah, I can see her. And then people in the audience were like, yeah, yeah, um, Letitia should come up and, you know, sing with you. And it was sort of like, mm, I really okay. did Like, y'all come to see me. <laughs> right. Lights against sister. Like, what is this? <laughs> like, it made me mad, actually, when I saw that. I was like, really? Like, yep. Ruby's fine on her own. She don't need a backup. She good. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> I, would like I mean, Letitia to be on the side. 
Right. You know, I mean, I'm sure Letitia can sing. I mean, she has a lovely voice. But I, I mean, even in that scene, in that dad, even when they were sharing the mic, you could kind of see there was like a power struggle. Oh, yeah. Where like, Ruby was like, listen, this is my space. Okay, this is my stage. And she was like, okay, that's enough now. There's a, like, it's really quick where uh, Letitia almost like takes the mic from her and then Ruby just kind of takes it right back. She was like, okay, girl, you don't get your own mic. Go sit over, go stand over there. Exactly. Um yeah, so that's I'm I'm so excited for you to see the next few episodes with Ruby because who yeah they have a lot in store for her. Um, but and then we also see that um, when they travel when they decide to uh, travel to Massachusetts, uh, uh, Letitia decides to go stay with her older brother, and he's also dark skinned as well. So we're get so we understand that um, I believe they have the same mother. They all have the same mother, but not the same father. So they're, I don't like using half sister, half brother, but basically they have the same mother, but different biological fathers. And I'm wondering if Letitia's father could perhaps be white or a very, very light-skinned black man. Um, I don't know. I'm, I, I didn't see any pictures of that, but I'm very interested to see if there's going to be like any deep diving into Letitia's parenting. Um, and But yeah, so she travels to her brother's house and then that's when we got that climactic scene <laughs> where, and what's interesting is like, you don't ever really see Letitia and her brother fighting. Like visually you hear it, right? Because Atticus is on the front porch. Um, and then you kind of hear the brother and he sounded hella scary. I gotta say. Yeah, he did. Um, he did. Yeah. But yeah. I for her in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was holding her own though. Yeah, she was. But yeah, but we, we understand that, um, she did. Uh, Letitia did miss her her mother's funeral. She it seems that she asked her older brother for money. She asked her brother for money, and she lied to him. She said she needed the money to come home. She never showed up. Missed her mother's funeral, and then that's when she reveals that she actually used the money because I think she's part of. She could be part of SNCC or some sort of um, act, some civil rights organization where she used the money for bail money. And so in this specific scene, we're hearing. Letitia and her brother fighting. And then in the background, and meanwhile, we see the conversation with Atticus and his uncle George. That scene, can you talk to me about that scene? Because I was, I ha, I've been watching it and I've just really been, well, particularly um, the conversation between Atticus and his uncle. That was a lot. sounding good. I've heard worse. Here's a part of worse. I'll just tell you what happened last time I was home. No. Porter came back. Wanted to interview me on what it was like to be a Negro soldier. I was lost. Said it was bad enough I was throwing my life away for a country that hates me. Now I was gonna go and spy others to make the same stupid mistake. I decided to give as good as I got for once. Still see the cracks in the plaster when we slammed into the wall. Just because he didn't agree with the decision doesn't mean he didn't care. He never wrote me. Not one letter till he needed help. Your first year, I mean, he'd come back there almost, almost every night. Wouldn't ask about you. 
didn't, he wouldn't go home. He stayed at 10, 11, midnight. And that's what it took waiting for me to bring up the subject of evil. Drove him a lot of crazy. Of course it did. Just another example of how hard-headed he was. Our truth has done the best he can. He didn't have it easy with our father. Why are you always defending him? You grew up in the same house. You came out just fine. Your pops was... Was what? What? He was younger. He was smaller. He took the brunt of it. I should have protected him more. I always regret that. I was younger and smaller, too. You ain't do shit to protect me. You regret that? The main thing I pulled from that was they was having their conversation and then Letitia and her brother was having a conversation. And you could tell Atticus was concerned because Letitia and her brother was having a very, you know, tough, you know, very, you know, in some ways volatile exchange. And mm-hmm. he was concerned that Jordan telling him, you know, that's family business, like mind your business. And it's like, mm. and then when that came on, I was like, see, this is why black families have the problems that they do because nobody wants to get involved when they hear or see something is wrong, even if it's two adults. You know, it's not about getting people business and make sure that people are okay, make sure that people are not being abused. You know, you're not being nosy. You know, and that conversation that I was having was pretty intense. So, you know, it's like a man and a woman dynamic. So, mm. you know, I think that Atticus had a right and should have been concerned about Letitia's safety, even though it, she was with her brother, just that whole feel of it. But for George to be like, yes, you know, I see it too. I hear it as well, but I'm just going to mind my business. Like, this is how secrets and you know, mm. secrets kind of get allowed to breathe, breathe in our communities and breathe in our community and and the things that we see and hear, and nobody talks about what's going on. Nobody talks mm-hmm. about, okay, why are you and your brother fighting this hard? Y'all haven't seen each other, so why are you going at each other like cats and dogs? You know, and to see also George and Atticus, you know, them having their own exchange. You know, it was just, it was a very intense scene with what we were seeing as viewers up close with George and Atticus, and also hearing in the background with um, Marvin and Letitia. So I don't, it was just a lot going on in that scene, but it's also, again, as I stated, realistic to dysfunctional family dynamics between people, you know, between between siblings and also between, you know, uncle and nephew and, you know, younger person, the older person. You know, it was very realistic portrayal that I think probably more people could relate to than what they may want to admit. Right. Right. And it, it, it's so interesting because that, that, that term that George use, uses um, to prevent Atticus from, you know, stepping in is it's family business. Right. And we kind of hear the echoes of that in the second episode when George and Montrose are reunited. Right. Um, and, you know, Montrose is having basically that same conversation. Like, well, why didn't you step in when I was being abused? Right. George didn't really have much to say. <laughs> he did it. He did it. You know what I mean? And it was mm-hmm. like, and what do you say to your brother? And I think that maybe George, maybe some of that didn't know what to say, maybe have been shamed on his end. Realized mm-hmm. that he should have done more. You know, and maybe seeing some of the trauma that Montrose endured. You know, yeah. and it's not like I don't think that was the first time maybe George saw some of the traumatic impact 
But I think maybe it was the first time where it may have hit him, kind right. of hard. Particularly, you know, with his brother going missing and being not being found. You know, I really think that maybe it had came together for him of like, wow, my my inability or a willingness to get involved really hurt my brother to the point to where he has a volatile relationship with his son. Mm-hmm. You know, that whole generational um, trauma being carried over in the relationship. Right. So I think that, you know, in that moment of not knowing what to say, it's like, but what do you say? You know, these are grown men now. You no, know, they're older now. So what do you say to your brother when you didn't step in to protect him? Mm-hmm. You know, outside of, I'm sorry. You know, but but you already see that the harm has been done. Right. Right. So, I mean, in your work, in, in social work, like not, you know, violating anybody's confidentiality, but how do you see that this kind of, at least what's going on in Lovecraft country, how do you see that in parallel to the work that you do with black families um, as a social worker? I think what I have realized in some of the work that I've done in the early of my career is just, you know, just picking up patterns, the whole generational thing. Um, I know that a big thing um, when it comes to black trauma, black pain is us carrying these things in our cells, you know, the epigenetic cell memory, um, which is the study of biological mechanism. You know, um, just seeing how what happens to us um, on the outside, quote unquote, the external impacts us on the internal, you know, impacts our DNA. And we carry these traumas you know, from generation to generation in our genes and our stories in the patterns of behaviors that has been done. Just as what I just said about Montrose being abused and he has this now volatile relationship with his own son. You know how that kind of carries over in relationships, whether we are conscious of it or not. I think that's a very big thing with depictions of dysfunction of black families. And I really like it in this um show, particularly since we have a lot of the ancestral part that we got into in episode two um, with the ancestor um, Hannah, who is the um, is the one who was pregnant and escaped um, the um, household, you know, her slave owners who, you know, at that time. And just seeing how, you know, kind of the pain, the unsaid things has been carried over in our genes, in our blood, in the birthright that Atticus has. You know, mm. just kind of seeing that how that's similar to our families. You know, not you know, thinking about how not only do black people carry these things, but also white people do too. I think there was a great tweet that came out this week to saying that if we talk about, you know, what black people carry from generation to generation, the white people carry certain things as well. And I know mm. that, you know, so I think that we have to think about that trauma, you know, Trauma remembers all, you know, regardless of the generation. And it finds a way when it's unresolved to seep in. So I really feel that this show does a great job of showing what trauma endures. Because the white people are not um, immune to trauma either. They have right. their own function in the show. Mm-hmm. So you see what dysfunction looks like from the white side and the black side. And how the connector which was the slave owner with the enslaved, how that has allowed it to grow, you know, through these generations of people. So I just really, I don't know, it just shows, just does so well in connecting these dots 
and really bringing in these characters to really show you how people came to be in their own way and then what influenced them, you know, up to that point. Right. Right. And um, I, I want to put a pin in what you said about trauma and white families, because I do want to talk about the Braithwaite, the Braith, Braithwaite family, yes. uh, particularly with Christina and her father. There's definitely stuff there. So we'll circle that. But I, I, I want to pick up on what you said about generational, because one of the things that I think about is like the just the conversation that we have even today in the black community about corporal punishment. Should we beat our children or not? Right. And I remember I was on Twitter a few years ago when that whole story with Adrian Peterson um, was an NFL player. He's a football player. And the story came out that if I remember the details correctly, he had taken his son. I think his son was like three or four. He had taken him for the weekend. And so he was playing with his other brothers. And I think, you know, you know how children are. They're, they're oh, yeah. playing. They're fighting over like a game console or whatever. I guess he wanted the controller. He threw a fit. That's what kids do. And then, yeah, it came out that Adrian Peterson, you know, whooped him. And when he brought, dropped his child back off, that's when the mother was like, wait the hell up. She was like, I, I saw these bruises. I think they said it was even on his testicles. Like, Whoa. we're talking about an NFL player. This is a guy who was paid to, like, run through other grown-ass men, right? And then you put the whole, like, you just beat this child, like, leaving you know, bruises. And I think what was so disturbing to me, Valissa, was it seems that we're so progressive, like for a lot of black people, we are so progressive in certain areas, right? But then when it comes to the idea of corporal punishment, all of a sudden, all the progressiveness just goes out the window, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, you got to beat these kids. And what was, what was bothersome to me was that it wasn't even that they were mad that Adrian Peterson beat his son. They were like, well, they didn't, he didn't need to leave bruises on him. So I was like, oh, so that's the line for you, leaving the bruises? Okay, all right, this is, this is interesting. Um, how do you feel that slavery, right? Because I feel like a lot of these things are just sort of like these after effects or of PTSD and after effects of slavery. Um, it, do you feel like there's a connection there between the legacy of slavery and how we discipline our children in modern day? Oh yeah. I think that what people have this whole attitude of, well, I got beaten. I'm going to beat my kids. And it's like, mm. Oh, I turned that well, but like, did you, did you know? No, you probably didn't. You know, it's, it's what, like, you know, it's one thing, you know, a pop on the yeah. hand, you know, it's one thing, but if you're using electric cord, like some people did back in the day, you know, mm -hmm. actual weapons, you know, get a switch off the tree. You know, I think we have this tendency to protect our abusers as a people. We don't mm. want to say that our big mama or our mom or our dad beat us because that's a whole different dynamic in how we have to view them, have to view their ability to parent. And for some mm -hmm. of us, you know, our families dealt with hard times, you know, dealing with slavery, you know, some of us, our story is that we didn't come from much, you know, and, you know, when you have people who have endured a, an incredible injustice and inhumane treatment and being forced to accept the scraps of society to kind of make a way out of really hardly any way and build capital, you know, build an education, you know, there's going to be some people who do you have a hard time, you know, financially and and economically. And mm -hmm. because of, you know, what happens when you don't have enough resources, 
that creates a whole lot of stress. And I think some of us don't don't have the tools to really assess our parents doing the best they can, but understanding that that best was not good enough. It was not good because it was harmful. It was abusive. And I think some of us don't want to admit that getting those beatings was abuse. Mm. And I think some of us, you know, again, don't want to face that harsh reality that our parents abused us. And what do you do when you realize that? So people, they, they cannot handle that type of dynamic. So I remember that conversation. I didn't, I, I didn't um, know the, ex- the full extent of the beating to the point to where it, it showed up on a child's privates, but that none of that is okay. Like, just to say that for the record, beating mm-hmm. your child to the point to where there's bruises all over the body and especially the private area is not okay. Like you're, you're an adult. This is a mm-hmm. child. It's an unequal fight to begin with. And it shouldn't be a fight that exists in the first place. But I think that we just don't want to face the hard truth is that many of us were raised in dysfunctional households because our parents were enduring their own trauma of being mm-hmm. black and in these cities or in the rural areas and trying to make ends meet and maybe not knowing how they were going to feed themselves or you during that week or that day, you know, dealing with the injustices of, you know, maybe not being treated right at the job or being mistreated when it comes to just them existing in the world and not having the tools to know how to handle those things. And also maybe having some underlying mental health conditions as well. That's wow. because of racism, white supremacy, the stress of that and anything else when it comes to being in these black bodies, you know, because let's say, let's face it, you know, my generation, your generation are the ones that openly talk about therapy, going to therapy, dealing with our mental health. You know, like, you know, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, and the generation before them, they didn't have those conversations. I know I see it in my family. I'm sure you see it in yours, where you really see the divide in understanding the pain that people endure and the reasons why they did the things they did and the ramifications of that, you know, right. and, the, and a lot of families were doing the best that they can, best that they could with what they had, but what they lacked really, really impacted people after them. And I just feel that we're just not very honest about that. We don't, we're not honest that how the way that we were raised was traumatic, was harmful. The people that we love abused us. We're not ready to have those deep conversations and how some of us, may unknowingly have these thoughts, like you were saying, Rebecca, that beating him, like, it's okay to beat him, just not that hard. No, you don't mm-hmm. beat your child, put your hands on the child. You are an adult. As an adult, you should be able to control yourself, control your anger, control how intense you feel about what a child is doing. Children are children. They're going to push your buttons. That's what they do. <laughs> That's their calling in life. But it's up to you to have the tools and the skills to learn how to parent, to learn how to remain in control of yourself, even when you're at your peak, to even know when to um, remove yourself if you cannot control yourself. That shows mm. a sign of emotional maturity, intelligence, you know, and safety so that you don't end up doing something that could traumatize your child and yourself. So I really feel that a lot of us are not honest about the ways in which we view abuse, what we know is abuse versus 
um, what we know of versus what it actually is and our experience for it. So I think that you know, that whole thing is just very telling of the childhoods that people have and what they may or may not be perpetuating within their own children. I, I totally agree with that because um, I'm an aunt. I'm, while I'm not a mother, I, I am an aunt. And I am seeing just the generation with my nephews and nieces that there is a difference, right? Because um, I we came, there was abuse in my family. And I think because of that, you know, my siblings have, you know, made like this conscious decision that their parenting would be different, right? So we really don't, at least to my knowledge, my sisters and my brothers who have children, they don't really believe in corporate punishment. But what I am seeing is that my nephews and niece have a certain emotional intelligence that I never had, right? Because I have a nephew who's 13 years old. And the way that, I mean, to be honest with you, he's basically the perfect child, where I joke about it all the time. But like the couple of things that he has done, like I think a couple of weeks ago, he broke the bathroom sink. Don't even ask me how we did it. But he, he was he came into the room and he was so terrified. He was like, oh my God, I'm afraid to tell you what I did. And I'm like, well, what did you do? And he was like, I broke the sink. I think he kind of kind of was leaning on it, like kind of climbed up so he could look at himself in the mirror. Don't ask. But the point being is like, he was really afraid that he was going to get beat. He was like, oh my God, um, grandma and grandpa are going to kill me. Like they're, And I was like, no, it's, it's all good. And I was like, you're just going to, I was like, what you're going to do is you did it. You're going to have to go upstairs and go tell grandma and grandpa that what you did, of course, they were, they just laughed. They just called, you know, the guy to go fix the sink and everything. But he was, he was so scared. Like we were, and I was like, no, we don't, we don't do that in this family. And I think that's something for us. We are consciously making sure that the next generation that comes after us, it's really about conflict resolution, like talking about, like, we believe in grounding. If, if you do something wrong, we take away privileges. But I do feel that the fact that we have decided to do something different, these children are being raised in a totally different way. And I, and I can see the benefits of that, you know, because it takes work. It's easier to take a, oh, yes. to just whoop a child. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it is. And that's one thing I hear from um, my Gen X friends and family members and millennial friends and fam- family members is that it does take work. I'm like, y'all do a whole lot of talking, but that talking is necessary in explaining to children what's going on, you know, why they may have to have a certain punishment. You know, talking, you know, takes more effort than, you know, using your hands, you know. Mm. So I really feel that, you know, our you know, our generations are raising the children better to where they can have more freedom to mess up and not fear of getting extremely harmed. You know, I think that, you know, we just, I think we have a better understanding of child psychology, how children work, child development. I think that type of education really helps in, in people knowing where their child are in a developmental stage and how to engage with them, how to talk about certain things with serious issues or not you know, how to engage with them. That takes a lot of education that a lot of our family members did not have due to racism and segregation and so on and so forth. So I think as we become more aware through access and resources and even some education, you know, some formal, some not, you know, we learn how to do better. You know, when you know better, you do better. Very Mm -hmm. simple saying that really applies here, you know, so that our kids can break those generational traumas. You know, so I think that the way that you all are raising, you know, your nieces and nephews, you know, that's really going to help to break some of those chains that a lot of our families have had 
for so long because we did not have the tools to do better with where we were and what we had. So I think that's very important. I think this generation of kids, I see them being more freer. They're more daring too in certain ways. But I think mm. that's what, you know, daring means just being kids. But I think that's something we have to realize that our black kids deserve to be kids. And part of that is allowed them to mess up. Part of that is allowed them to be held accountable. But also knowing that at the end of the day, they are loved. And that love isn't going to be taken away because they broke the toilet seat. You know, or they did something, you know, that they know they couldn't, they shouldn't do, but they did it anyway. That that love isn't going to be taken away from them because they were quote unquote bad. So I really think that with us doing better, our kids are able to be children and black children deserve to be children. You know, and I don't think we give our black children that space because we know how society looks at them. But we also need to realize that we do them a grave disservice by not allowing them to be free. And black children deserve to be free in who they are, being free to know that they can mess up and it not be something of a severe punishment to where they have to fear for their safety. And that's something that we as the adults in their lives, regardless of what role that we play, that's our job to take what we know is right, to know what we're doing is better than what maybe our parents and the other adults that we've had in our lives, to take those tools and apply it. And we will see the difference because like what you're seeing right now is the difference between people who have the tools, people who are conscious and really doing things a completely different way and seeing the results of that. Right. I, I don't, that was perfect. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> I, I love what you're saying. Cause I, I feel that it, it's so true and it's, it's, it's up to us. Right. But I mean, we have the trauma and right. somehow turning that trauma into healing. So right. um, what advice would you give to anybody who's listening to this podcast? It either if they are the child of abusive parents or if they are, if you're a parent who finds that you are abusing your child, what tools or resources do you, uh, would you um, advise that for them to, to find or, or just to break the cycle? I say that for anybody who was, who is a survivor of abuse, know that it was not your fault. I think that's the first thing that needs to be said. Know that you did not deserve any of the harm that was done to you. Knowing that, particularly if you experienced childhood abuse, you know, regardless of what it was, you were a child, there was only so much that you could do to protect yourself, and that the adults in your life that did abuse you failed you for whatever reason. That is not your shame or punishment to carry. Um, if you are a parent that finds yourself abusing your child, you need to take very, very immediate steps to stop. There is help out there. There's therapy. Please, I'm so glad people are now embracing therapy something that I preach as a social worker, find a therapist, there are sliding scales, and especially now with the pandemic, a lot of therapists are offering things online. There's uh, websites, you know, like Talkspace, where you don't have to leave your house, you can text, you can do video chats, go to therapy. And if you're a survivor of abuse, go to therapy as well. Do that healing. You know, there's no shame in therapy. There's no shame in understanding that you may not have the tools to, to really handle what happened to you. Or to deal with your anger, to deal with your frustrations, to deal with the way in which black bodies, black people are treated in this society that that occurred before any of us were born. You know, that is not your fault. But what you do have a responsibility to do is to heal yourself so that you do not be a perpetuator of this trauma, of this harm, of this abuse, of this pain. I really think that it's key for those of us who are the adults 
to be the adults that we wish that we had. And I think that's the main responsibility I know that I undertake when it comes to the children in my life. I don't have children either, but I have um, a nine-year-old cousin who I love dearly, who, you know, I am engaged in his upbringing, you know, to have those talks, um, or at least assisting his mom in certain things that he may be going through. Because that's my charge, to ensure that the traumas that we endure, what we endure or see the impact of them from others that we love, doesn't continue with this generation and going forward. So getting help, there's plenty of resources out there, especially there are black social workers and counselors and therapists like myself who are doing these tools. I know a great outlet that I always point people to, particularly black women and femmies, are Therapy for Black Girls. They have a, uh, Dr. Joy has created this wonderful directory of black women and femmies therapists. So if you feel like you need help, whether you're a survivor or you're realizing that, you know what, I need to figure out better ways to parent, to control my anger, to control my hurt, to deal with my own situation. Because I think we have to realize that parents are people too. And I think that as we grow up, we realize that even though our parents are our parents, they were people before we came along. And they had their own entire story before us and when we came into the picture. So really honoring that as well, but also not letting that honor disregard the responsibility that we have to be better than what we may have been before and what we can be now. Great. Thank you so much, Velissa, <laughs> for stopping by. I, I really hope that there'll be some healing coming up. Like I, I'm really hoping that the show and, and, you know, people like you um, just doing the work in order for us to heal as a people, because there's, it's crazy out there. We've already got the external with white supremacy that we're fighting. Um, but I'm hoping that we can find some healing within ourselves, within our own community. Yeah, so we thank deserve you. That. We black people deserve to be healed and to do the healing. So make room for that. I know we do a lot of grinding and stuff like that, but you can't grind if you're not healed and healing takes priority. So make healing a priority. Right. Thank you so much. <laughs>